I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. In this episode, we're hearing from a woman who holds the North American deadlift record after being in the sport for just a few short years. April Hutchinson started powerlifting as a means of helping her stay sober and for help with her mental health issues. She began to excel in just a short amount of time, qualifying for and placing fourth at the world within just two years of starting her journey into powerlifting. As if conquering sobriety in the midst of a pandemic while becoming a world-level contender in her sport isn't dramatic enough, April has also been forced to compete against a male athlete for years in a number of powerlifting competitions. She has finally had enough and decided to start speaking out in support of women this year. Her national federation has threatened and intimidated her trying to censor her speech. April says that a lot of women are silenced and feel silenced and that they have no voice or they're afraid to speak up because of fear of maybe getting kicked out of their federation or backlash. So she is leading the charge, hoping to inspire courage in others to speak up as well. You'll hear us discussing the biological male going by the name Ann Andrus. A few weeks after recording this conversation, this biological male shattered all of the Canadian women's records and unofficially the women's world record by beating out second place by 200 kilograms. That's well over 400 pounds over second place. In this conversation, we talk about April's incredible journey from addiction to sobriety, becoming a world record holder, and how we can help fight to save women's sports. And I am excited to bring back my biggest and most complete program, Confident Competitor. Confident Competitor is an online step-by-step program that I created to show you how to make the ultimate shift to knowing exactly how to relieve anxiety and confidently rise to the occasion in your biggest events. There's no need to be frustrated with what's not working, struggling to perform well in competition, or feeling uncertain of what you should be doing. You can focus your mindset and make the necessary changes to your mental game that will improve your physical performance and begin to level up your game while also giving you fulfillment back again in your sport. Confident Competitor is the only implementation program of its kind for athletes who are committed to using the power of their minds to raise the level of their confidence and ultimately their performance. By the end of this program, you're going to have things like an entire roadmap to achieve your goal. You're going to have moved successfully past failure. You're going to develop routines to lower stress and anxiety. You're going to courageously face your fears. You're going to start changing that voice inside your head to one of belief. You're going to implement an effective visualization practice into your routines, and you'll be walking into your next event more confident and enjoying the journey. What's included? We've got 19 lessons on mindset, mental game, and performance skills. There are worksheets of takeaways and activities to help you implement those new skills that you're learning. There are bonuses like the Stay Confident Guide and group coaching. You can learn more about it at laurawilkinson.com slash course. That's laurawilkinson.com slash course. I don't know when I'm going to open this back up again, so don't miss out on this opportunity. laurawilkinson.com slash course. Before we get started, make sure you smash that subscribe button and give us a five-star review. And please tell your friends about this podcast so that we can continue to improve and grow to that next level, bringing you more resources, tools, and inspiration. All right. I believe that there's gold in your future. So let's dive on into this episode. April Hutchinson, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. I have been looking forward to talking to you. So thank you so much for joining us today. Yes. Thank you so much, Laura. I'm honored to be on your podcast. Thank you. 
I really want to hear a lot of the background of your story. Like, did you start off in sports? Because I feel like you've just really kind of come on the scene in weightlifting. So like, tell us a little bit of your background. So I've always been active in sports as a young child. So my father, I think since the age of five, had me into power skating for hockey, baseball. He was always the coach of all my teams. So I started at a very young age. Uh, track and field in public school, probably in public school up until high school, tennis. And it seemed like any sport that I did get into, I would excel at. So when I joined the tennis team, I made it to provincials and all Ontarios. I did get into ringette. I was always, I was always kind of like the captain of my team, basketball in high school. So I, I was always into athletics. Because I think just because my father got me into it, right? And he was a very, not strict father, but very much so like you do your best, you know? And so there was a lot of pressure to always be the best, right? Or be number one and to put all my energy into sports. So when I got into powerlifting, it just came naturally to me. I actually started powerlifting a little bit when I was into MMA I actually started doing MMA fights when I was 40 years old, which is crazy. Okay, so maybe, maybe I should ask you what you haven't done. Maybe that would be so, <laughs> that's, that's the funny thing. I think Joe Rogan once did a uh, talk about this and we're very kind of similar that way. Like people with OCD, especially because I do have OCD, they really do like to pick one thing and just obsess over it. Do your best at it. And then you kind of move on because you're like, okay, I did that. So now I'm going to move on. And that's kind of my mentality was I would try a sport, do my very best or win gold or whatever. And they're like, okay, now I've done that. So next time and I'm going to try something new. Right. So, but thankfully the OCD lets me, um, you know, obviously put all my energy and like, honestly, like I ignore my boyfriend. I like, I don't do anything. You can get in your little box, right? (laughs) So I actually got into MMA and I started, I did my first cage fight when I was 41 years old. Okay. 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 Wait. So pause here. That's awesome and crazy all at the same time. So how do you go from like doing all these like junior high and high school sports, you know, with your dad coaching and your captain of all of them to now we've got a 20 year gap or so when you're 40 and doing cage fighting, like what (laughs) happens in between that time? Well, I mean, I obviously had a full-time job. So, I mean, you have life events. My mother was very ill when I was in my early 20s. So that took some time taking care of her. She had brain cancer. So I was living in London, as I said, like I live in London now, but she lived three hours away. So I would have to spend a lot of time working, then traveling up three hours to go help take care of her, travel back, work, helping my dad out with her. And then she did pass away when I was 25. So I mean, that, I don't know, of course I was maybe into like a little bit of a a slump or a depression, right? Where I just didn't do anything. I think I've told you when we first started chatting that I've suffered with alcoholism, majority of my life, addiction and mental health issues. So I think losing my mother really triggered that and made things worse for me. Because when I talk about these sports that I did, I've always been kind of a functioning alcoholic, right? So I was able to do sports and be a functioning alcoholic. I think there was a time period for about 10 to 15 years there where I was probably not doing my best. And then when I got sober, that's when I got back into mainstream sports in, you know, MMA. And then I was like, oh, then I found powerlifting. So, yeah. So during that gap of time, like, Kind of walk me through that because for somebody to become a really good adult athlete, like 
in their 40s. It's, first of all, just very impressive in general. I mean, and I took a 10-year break when I retired after my third Olympic Games before I started back with four kids in tow, um, you know, trying to make the Olympic trials and all that stuff. And that was really hard. And I wasn't in the situation you were in. Like, I, I kind of got out of shape, but I kind of got back into shape. It wasn't like this extenuating circumstances for an extended period of time. Like, were you still doing some kind of workout or some kind of sports in that time? Like, how did you even... Because to go from nothing to intense, what happened in that block of time? And like, how do you come back to this high level of sport at 40? So I think I've always been, I guess, active. So when my mother passed away when I was 25, like I said, I was in a very bad space and time in my life, but I would still make an effort to, even if I was drinking, I would still try to eat healthy or I would try to get out and go for a walk. Not every day. I mean, we're talking when I was 25. I wasn't drinking, I don't think, every day at that point. And I wasn't that sick because what happened when I turned 44, that's when I got sober, I was very sick. My doctor gave me two years to live and I literally couldn't walk 10 feet without throwing up. I needed to drink just to function. I was having convulsions and seizures. So I literally would have to wake up in the morning and drink something or have some vodka just to be like, okay, now I can go grocery shopping. Or I would take my vodka with me. You know what wow. I mean? Like it, like, as like a your body, bottle. your body literally couldn't function without it at that point. Yeah. It was basically my medication. There was times that I had tried to get sober. My friends came and stay with me and try to kind of detox me, but it was just so hard. And I guess looking back, it makes me cry just to think about it that, you know, I really wanted it so bad to get better. And I think that's why I was able to do sports is because I still said, Hey, like I remember I'd be drunk and some nights I would sit there and just do a hundred push-ups because mm-hmm. I was like, that's it. I got to do something. I could do a hundred push-ups or ab crunches. I would do something, right? Yeah. Did that somehow make you think you were going to be okay if you could still do those things? Exactly. You know, and even though I couldn't hold down food and I knew I was violently ill and I was very bad in bad shape, I was still trying to make an effort up to the point where I got sober because I actually did enter a rehab clinic. I can remember going to, I actually met my coach a couple months before I went to rehab and I would go, I hired him as my coach and I would go and do workouts. And we started, he's the one that got me into powerlifting. And he said, oh, I could smell the booze coming off you. Like, I didn't know I did, but I would still do my workout. We're talking like heavy workout. And then I would go puke in the bathroom after. Oh, my goodness. Because I was so sick, but I was making an effort. And I really, because you know what? I really wanted to live. I was trying to do my best to live. And I think, I don't know if you saw my video the other day, but I did talk about towards the end where I did attempt to take my life because my alcohol addiction was just, I didn't see any end to it. I just didn't want to keep living that way. I felt like I was constantly disappointing myself and my friends and my family. So it was just a horrible way to live. So I ended up trying to kill myself with pills and booze. And I actually ended up in the IC unit, the intensive care unit on a breathing tube. So I literally almost you know, died. It was, and I can't talk about it without you know, crying because it was a very hard and painful part of my life. I can't even imagine like what kind of helped you turn the corner. I mean, because you said you had some friends that were trying to help you. You obviously wanted to live, you know, and you didn't want to live that way, but you were trying. So what finally helped you turn the corner and get into rehab? To me, I think I had the perfect time to go because I knew, well, 
the only escape route was death, right? Mm. For me to actually die, knowing that I was slowly dying anyways. I was like, well, you know, my boyfriend and I had broken up because it was just too painful for him to watch me go through this. He still helped me from afar. Like he always loved me. We're back together now, but it was just so hard for him. As I imagine, it was hard for anyone to watch me go through that. I wasn't working. So just because I couldn't function. Right. So, I mean, the only thing I really was doing was training here and there, but I thought, well, now was the perfect time because I'm not working. I really have nothing much else to lose. Right. I've always been able to hold my, I have a house or a condo and, and that's fine. I've had a roof over my head, but I thought if I'm going to do it now's the time to go. So I was like, let's give it a shot. And I went in and I literally came out and I, it's almost like I had a lobotomy when I was there. Like I just totally <laughs> forgot that I that I drank. So how did you detox through that too? Because were you still having to drink some just so your like <laughs> kidney or liver don't shut down? Like how does that process work? Do they have to first wean you off and then you kind of detox? Like how does that work well, physically? I won't tell my counselor. I don't talk to them anymore, anyways. But like I, I still have friends that work at the rehab. You are supposed to be detoxed before you go in. So I would have had to have gone to my local detox center for three days prior to, because it takes about 72 hours for alcohol to get out of your system. But I didn't do that. I actually went right in. And the first couple of days there, I hid the fact that I was so sick. Like I was throwing up. I had the sweats, the shakes. I wasn't eating. And I think the counselor who I've known, she's actually a friend of mine too. And she said, hmm, that's not the April that I know. That's really weird, especially me not eating food because I'm a huge foodie. <laughs> but then on day three, I started coming around and I started eating. Well, I did I eat? I ate probably two or three plates of food <laughs> and I got the color back in my face. But what my counselor said, because we were at the group, we have like the sharing, the group um, go around and talk and share your stories and the counselor looked at me and she goes, there's the April I know. You have the twinkle back in your eye. And she just she kind of winked at me and she kind of knew, right, that I hadn't. But it is very dangerous. I mean, that's why I, I always had to have someone with me because with alcohol, it's the only drug that you can actually, besides benzos and stuff like that, you could actually have an instant heart attack or stroke coming off alcohol. I mean, I don't know if a lot of people with addictions watch your show, but I would highly advise anyone that's looking to get help with addictions to please ask for help and make sure it's assisted because it's very important. It's very dangerous. What advice would you have for anyone kind of dealing with that, that, you know, is thinking about getting help based on your experience, having friends try to help you, you've been, you know, through the gambit, you know, so what, what advice would you give to those listening? Well, I think the first thing is to always know a lot of time you feel like you're alone in the battle or, you know, there's a huge stigma involved, unfortunately. And I think now it's a lot better, but I would say always just to reach out and tell someone, like, don't be ashamed of it because you'd be surprised how many people are dealing with some type of addiction, whether it be food or drugs or cigarettes. So it's not uncommon. So don't feel like you're alone, but reach out. I mean, there's always numbers. There's always Alcoholics Anonymous. You can always find that in the phone book. You can actually call them and they will speak to you on the phone and they'll actually help you get to a meeting. They'll have like a little buddy system, any mental health crisis line. They can also direct you to a lot of resources 
But yeah, I would say just reach out to a, a confidant or a friend that you can speak to. It could be your local priest, right? It could be your family doctor. It could be your boss. It could be anyone. All my coworkers, like that's the thing. Why I kept relapsing and why I couldn't get sober is because I held it in as a secret. I was so ashamed of it. But after I got sober this time, I was like, screw that. You know, I want to live. I don't care who knows this. And the more and more people I told, all my employers knew everyone in my life. And they are so proud of me. And they actually, we celebrate my sobriety birthday each year and have a big party. And like, I mean, so many people deal with this, right? That it's just like, actually my, actually in London here, I just found out today that London just has its first um, sober nightclub. So oh, interesting. Cool that? That's yeah. very cool. I have to ask, I'm thinking three years ago, did this have, like you went into rehab during the pandemic? Because I, I know a lot of people struggled, like a pandemic yeah. hit and people like turned to that. You know what I mean? So what was the time yeah. period you went in? So I went in September, 2019. So oh, I've actually like talked about this in my speech was if I hadn't gone, I would be dead for sure. Because like, I know they kept the liquor stores open during COVID just strictly for people that had addictions because like they would die if they didn't have their drug. Right. Mm. But I remember I would see the lineup to the liquor store during the pandemic. And I was like, wow, I wouldn't even be able to stand in that lineup. Like yeah. I would have died just standing there, but I would have just sat at home and drank all day. Like I definitely would not have lasted, but COVID was so horrible I, for probably 90% of people. But for me, it was actually my blessing because I got sober a couple of months prior and then COVID hit. There was no competitions. There was nothing. So I literally trained my little tush off in my friend's garage every day. That's how I got so strong and like basically qualified for worlds within like a year. Right. So it actually helped me in my sobriety. Uh, I love that. That's good. Positive things coming out of COVID. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. So how long is the rehab? And then what drove you to want to do the powerlifting? Like, was it just working out with a friend and it grew to something or like walk me through that period, like that kind of huge 180 that you took? Yeah. So rehab's usually 28 days, but sometimes it can be less or more depending on the, the severity. And then I started getting into powerlifting before I went into rehab. Actually, I touched on this in the beginning was I actually got into powerlifting when I was doing my MMA which was a couple of years prior. Now, the reason why is because my coach, my MMA coach, Chris Clements, he's a retired UFC fighter, amazing guy. He suggested that I take powerlifting to help with my explosiveness and my power. So I just dabbled in it. But then even my coach, he's like, wow, you're doing really well. Like you're just, honestly, I do have fast, more fast switch fibers and it's, it is genetics. I get that. Probably why I was so good at track and field. But no, and I just, I loved it. I loved the feeling I got. It was very empowering lifting heavy weights. And then I was like, wow, you know, it's kind of cool that I lift more weights than my boyfriend, who's a firefighter and all the firemen at the fire hall. <laughs> so, you know, it's just, you know, I, I just love it. It's a great feeling. And, and the best part is building muscle is so great because especially me, I'm in my forties, right? So it helps with bone density. We don't want to be 70, right? And be like, oh, I can't get out of a chair because of my hips or I can't bend down. So mm -hmm. I do want to build as much muscle as I can. I want to be active. It's great for any person to do powerlifting, right? I go to the high schools here in London and I teach the kids the importance of weightlifting and mental health, right? And I said, 
you should be able to get out of a chair. Even today, I never use my hands to assist me out of a chair. So, I mean, just little things like that, but it's just, I, I love the sport. I mean, you know, I started off with doing Olympic weightlifting, which is the snatch and the jerk and all that. But mm-hmm. I mean, I never was awesome at it. So I just think like, hey, I'm awesome at powerlifting. So, so what's you know. the difference between Olympic lifting and powerlifting? I don't know the differences. A lot of people don't know Olympic lifting. So it's one of the first sports actually in the Olympics. And it's the clean and jerk, the snatch. It's three lifts, but it's the mm-hmm. ones where you would lift over your head. Now powerlifting is not in the Olympics, but they are trying to get it into the Olympics, working very hard by ironing out some wrinkles. I'm sure now with men competing in women's sports, that will not be a good thing for them to be going into the Olympics. So Mm -hmm. hopefully they get rid of that part of it. But no, and then it's so the powerlifting is the deadlift, the uh, bench and the squat. Oh, okay. Okay. Gotcha. That's so cool. So did you start competing as like, do they have like a master's division or is it just open or how does that work? So when I started, I wish I had started when I was younger. I mean, I started lifting in the master's division because that's 40 to 50 years old mm-hmm. and it was great. I mean, now I actually start competing with the opens because I sometimes find the master's not competitive. Competitive, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I go with the open category. Like I'll have- So you can choose. You can yeah, choose. exactly. Cool, cool. Yeah. It's just like when I turn it, when I turn 50, which will be in three years, I will be an M2, but I will most likely compete in the open still or master's one. Like you can do that. So when did you actually start competing? Because I know during COVID, everything was shut down and you were just training and getting really good. So when was like your first delve into competition for powerlifting? You know, it's crazy. My first competition was November, 2021. So I exited rehab September, 2019 and trained and signed up for so many competitions just to find out they were canceled. That was really bad. That was so up and down. And then finally they had the regionals in 2021 and they skipped the provincials because they knew because of COVID, all these people wanted to qualify for nationals. So I literally, which is unheard of, my first competition ever competing was regionals in 2021. And then I went right to nationals. Oh, my wow. First year. Like, wow. Yeah. And then to worlds, like that same year. Like, so you qualified to nationals and to worlds all in the same year. Yeah, all in the same wow. year. First yeah, year. So I went, <laughs> yeah, I went to my first worlds last year and I got fourth place. So I was pretty happy. I was supposed, oh, I was so close to getting third which I would have been so happy, but I lifted um, a 507 pounds for my deadlift and it was a good lift, but whatever. They red lighted me, the two side judges. So I didn't get it, but it was, yeah. I lifted the weight. So I was like, damn, I'm happy with that. So no. yeah, that's cool, yeah. man. That is amazing. So where did you set your sights from there? Like, were you super competitive or were you kind of like, you did the OCD come out and be like, yeah, I was pretty good at that. So now it's time to move on. Or like, where was your brain? So I guess pulling that 507, right? I was like, oh, that's so amazing. And I mean, I want to work on my squat and I want to work on my bench. My bench is my weakest. I mean, I'm designed, I'm very tall. I'm almost six, but tall. So I'm I'm actually designed for deadlift. I'm not designed for bench because usually people that are good at bench press are shorter, stockier, shorter arms. But I train more at bench during my week because I know it's my weakest. And then squats the second. So I'm the type that 
wants to perfect. Like I would love to lift 600 pounds someday. So, I mean, I'm aiming for that. And there's not one woman right now in my federation that's lifted 600 pounds. So I do know at North Americans coming up, I'm going to go for the world deadlift record, which will be 519. And then maybe more, I'm not quite sure, but I want to take definitely take some records at North Americans. I do have the North American deadlift record currently. So I want to retain that and keep that one. So um, no, I think there's always room for development, like being a little bit of an obsessive compulsive and perfectionist. I, I want to just keep getting better and better and better. So, I mean, there's, there's little things I continue yeah. working on. That's good. <laughs> oh yeah. So in 2026, the Commonwealth games will be in Australia. So I want to go there and sweep up all the records in um, the Commonwealth games. So that's one of my big dreams is to do that. And then I want to win a world. I want to get gold medal out of worlds. So when you go to these like like worlds and, and the North American championships and stuff, is that open or is that masters or how does that work? So that's masters. Okay. So when I go to these competitions, I do the masters. I mean, the open's way too competitive. Like I couldn't touch them. Okay. In Ontario, I'm the best lifter, I guess you could say, because I'm in the open. Mm-hmm. But I mean... And I do win gold. Like last year I went to provincials and I won gold medal for open. Right. But then once you start getting into regionals, there's more girls, obviously they're younger and yeah, whatever, but I like it because it keeps me going. Right. Like I it's love awesome. the fact that, yeah, that they kind of drive me. And the funny part is I drive them too. Right. Well, it's really funny because when I got back in, like I was telling you kind of after my almost decade off and I got back in and we started doing weights and well, I'm trying to keep up with all the teenagers and we had a former Olympian, well, not a former past Olympian in there. And so I'm like trying to keep up with all them. And I was so proud of myself because I deadlifted 335. It was with the hex bar, but I was like, I had never done that. You know, I was really, really proud of myself. And now you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to go 519. I'm like, oh, okay. 335 is like nothing. (laughs) But I was no, proud of myself. I was in my 40s. I wasn't too shabby. <laughs> oh my God. 335 is amazing. First of all, not many people can even, like guys can even lift that. Like my boyfriend couldn't even lift that. My like, husband can't. So I, I feel like I got something oh, on him. He's got way yeah. more upper body strength, but I got something. <laughs> that's a mark. It's a, just to get three plates on that is like a big thing, but you did more than that. And that's just amazing because a lot of people can't even do that. So See, I feel special now, but I am not going to awesome. go into powerlifting. I am not made for that, but that was my yay. Okay. I can do something. <laughs> That's <laughs> um, awesome. Yeah. So when you go to the competitions and you can set a record in each of the events, like, is it a combined to give you like the win or the title though? Yeah. So how it works is you go in, you start off with your bench press first, you get three attempts at bench press. Mm-hmm. And then say if I went in, I did like a 200 pounds from a bench, right? So that's my highest for bench. And then you move on to squat. Say if I did my top lift and squat, I'm given three chances, I get 400 pounds. So now my total's at 600, right? Pounds. And then deadlift, say 500. So I mean, what's that? 1100, right? Mm-hmm. Score. So if I have this highest score, you win gold medal. Okay. But a lot of the time, so when you look for Team Canada placement, they look at this thing called GL points. So they actually take your body weight and do the calculation and how much you lift, and that gives you your points. Oh, interesting. So it's, yeah, so that's how you get on basically Team Canada, like by their points. Because I mean, I'm on the lower end of my weight class, like I'm about 220, 225. So there's women that I'm competing against that are 400 pounds or 300 pounds. Wow. It's crazy. So 
if you know mass moves mass right so a lot of the bigger women will lift more right mm-hmm. but i mean considering how much i lift and i'm only i'm at the lower end of my weight class is pretty good so my gl points are pretty high that's cool wow that's very neat i love learning about other sports and, and the process yeah. and how it works so i just think that's really cool like geeking out over here I love your story from like sobriety and kind of just this whole new take on life. And like, you've got these goals and you are, you are what 47 now, and you are just like crushing records all over the place. Like, I just think that's really inspiring as somebody also in their mid forties. It's so cool and inspiring for me to like, keep going and keep working at things. I know you've had some other trouble as you have started to progress and get really good. So tell us a little bit about some of the newest issues you've been facing. (laughs) Oh, yes. So Back when I was training in 2020, now this is when there was no competitions going on. I was talking to an individual on Facebook because um, they started powerlifting and they were like, oh, you're really good. And like, because we'd share our videos and training and we would, we chatted for about a year and a half. Now, during our conversations, this individual would refer to themselves as like, oh, I'm a she boy and all, just these like terms, right? That I, I didn't really... I guess, understand or just didn't just kind of brushed off. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until about 2021 that we were talking about Laura Hubbard, how the biological male had entered the Olympics for the Olympic lifting. That was a Tokyo, right? Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. So, and I was like, oh, I don't agree with that at all. I said, that's totally unfair. And this individual said, oh, well, I'm a transgender. I'm a biological man. And I was like, Oh, I said, I didn't know that. He goes, no, I told you. I said, no, I just didn't clue in. Sorry. I said, well, are you going to be competing with the females? Are you going to try to go to nationals? And he's like, yes. And I said, are you going to try to go to the international like level, like worlds? And he said, yes. And I said, well, that's completely unfair to females. I said, I don't agree with that. And I said, if that ever happened, I said, I would raise hell. Like I wouldn't be quiet. And so he, then he blocked and deleted me. So after I said that. And so then he was actually at one of your competitions not too long after that, right? Yeah. So fast forward a little bit. He actually competed against one of my friends in British Columbia because he lives out there. And so he actually competed against my friend, Kristen. And she at that time didn't know he was a man. Like she lost, like he got gold medal. And she kind of suspected until she heard his voice and she's like, whoa, that's a man. Right. And so she's been kind of following it, but then all of a sudden she followed me on Instagram and saw me posting stuff about this individual. I'll just come on and say the person's name is Ann Andrus, and I will be referring to him as a, he and a biological male. So then she's like, hi, are you competing against the biological male Ann Andrus? And I was like, I might be at nationals coming up. Yes. And so I was very vocal at that time about keeping biological men out of female sports. I saw the severity of it and how it was affecting the United States. And I saw how it was coming into Canada and that no one was doing anything about it. So she said, well, I'm going to help you. So she's been on my side. She's been my best friend through all of this, but also Linda Blade. I don't know if you know Dr. Linda Blade. Mm -mm. She's the head of athletics in Alberta. She wrote a really wonderful book, How Trans Activism is Killing Sports, both for men and female. But she was uh, in the States on a NCAA scholarship for track and field. But she's been a wonderful help. She headed this group of women that basically protest at events where there's males competing against females. She's 
amazing in like just her language and, and politics. And she's helped with many letters to send to like to the Federation. And then I have Marcy Smith and uh, Kim Jones from Icons. And they've connected me with obviously Riley and Taylor and all these wonderful, it's just growing, right? And Icons have like, like just basically came in, swooped me up and just like put me under their wing and said, April, we are going to help you. Because I tell you, this whole journey, like when I found out that Anne was going to be lifting, I've been suffering so badly with depression and like not sleeping. It's affected my relationships. Like I've been fighting with like everyone in my life, like my boyfriend. He agrees my boyfriend's with me, but I just get so irritated, right? It's just, it's affecting me. It's consuming me. And it's like, and how my federation has been treating me through this and harassing me. How have they been treating you? Like what's been happening? Are they responsive at all to the protests and at all to the complaints? (laughs) Well, I have retained a lawyer. So my lawyer is actually helping me. But since I found out that Anne was competing and we have now seen Anne go to nationals, take a podium spot, Anne has now taken four out of five provincial records in Alberta. The other record is held by another man, Avi Silverberg, who went in and bench pressed to beat the trans identifying, to beat Anne, to show how weak the policy is. Right. He's wasn't it, wasn't that just a coach? He just yeah. claimed to be, because you don't have to show anything, right? You can just say, I'm a woman today and you can show up and compete, right? right? Yeah. Avi Silverberg is a Team Canada coach. He was, he's retired. He literally waltzed in and said, I feel like a female today. Okay, great. Come on in, Abby. And he just went in and crushed the record that Anne had. And everyone's like, oh my God, I can't believe he would do that. And I was like, well, guess what? He's not doing anything different than what Anne is doing. But I love how they twist it to make it seem like he's a bad person. But it's the exact same thing that Anne has been doing and keeps doing. So Anne just voiced the other day that he is now applying for worlds. Like he wants to go to worlds and he's going for master records in August. So he turned 40 this year and he's now going for the master records, which I was going for in August. And he knows that, but I mean, as you can see, it's not about fair competition anymore. It's about male dominance Mm -hmm. and he just wants to dominate and he's a narcissist. You know, and he has actually stated in his Instagram that he has an advantage. He has come out and said, well, I know I'm a transgender and I have an advantage, but, you know, my federation is not doing anything. So I'm just following the policy. I mean, what do you think at this point we start doing? Like what can make a difference? Like when you're together with these groups, these other athletes that are dealing with it, these lawyers and experts and things like that, like what is the sentiment of how can we make change? The first step we need to do is obviously just educate people, right? I mean, when I first started this, people would call me a bigot or transphobic, right? And I was like, oh my God, like, I just can't believe it. I was so scared. I was like, oh no. But as Riley Gaines and Taylor Silverman kind of said, April, you know, you'll get used to that. It's going to roll off your back like nothing because they use those terms to silence you. And That's exactly what my federation tried to do. They basically harassed me and disciplined me and say, don't speak up. If you do, you'll get suspended. And I was like, that's not right. Like you can't do that. And I know that I'm not transphobic. And that's what you have to remember at the end of the day. I know who I am as a person. 
I'm a very loving, compassionate person. I also suffer from mental illness, right? And a lot of the time people are like, oh, well, don't do this to transgenders. They're mentally ill. Don't. I'm like, well, guess what? We all have our story, why we lift and why we do sports. They're no more important than saying what my story is or what Riley's story is. The way it comes down to biology and common sense and science. It's chromosomes against chromosomes. And you have to keep it that way. You can't pull all this other stuff into it, right? It's bodies against bodies. So I think the first thing is obviously to educate people to speak up. And that's what I've been doing. And I mean, in the beginning, I was a little bit of afraid to speak up, but so many people are talking about it now. It's crazy. Like it literally from January to now has just grown so much. And so many people are just sick of it. And they're like speaking out. I go into many TV shows and podcasts to try to get my message out there. I have now retained a lawyer just so my federation can know what they're doing is wrong. Like, you know, they are infringing the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, right? You can't silence people for A, having an opinion or fighting for fairness. I'm not anti-trans. I'm pro-woman and I'm fighting for women's rights. And unfortunately, this last year, the women's rights in the United States and in Canada have put on the back burner, haven't they? So I suggest people just contact me. Like I have a website called I Stand With April. Send me a message. You could donate there for legal fees. You can also sign. There's a petition on my website that people can sign and send me a message on Instagram or on Facebook. And I will get connected with you and help you and how you can help us uh, get the message out there and to fight these, like basically these policies and these federations. That's all great. We'll definitely make sure to write all of that in the show notes so that people can mm-hmm. take action. What do you suggest for both athletes and parents that are maybe younger and like coming up through the pipes? Because this is affecting Olympic sports, pro sports. It's affecting college now. It's in the high schools in a lot of places. It's cost people scholarships, all kinds of things. Like, What do you suggest young athletes and parents do? I get actually get a lot of messages from parents actually that say, Hey, I, my daughter's swimming against a transgender or my, there's a soccer player that's transgender. And they actually reach out for me to help them. And I was like, well, I can't go and write your school and I can't do this and that. But I said, what you can do is if it's say, if it's a school or it's a team, I would say, talk to the Federation, send a letter or an email to the Federation, speak out and also speak to the other parents and say, Hey, you know, do you find a problem with this? Like, do you know the difference between men and women or boys and girls? Like it's completely unfair. I'd say speak up because if we turn a blind eye and go, oh, well, I don't want to offend anyone or I don't want to hurt someone's feelings, then guess what? Nothing will ever be done. You need to fight for what's right. You need to fight for yourself. We need to fight for girls in sports, our future generations. If I wasn't powerlifting, I would still be on your program or any other program. And I would still be voicing my concern. Like someday I might retire or quit. I'll still be fighting this. It's very important to me and uh, it needs to stop. The discrimination needs to stop. And I think that's what people need to do with parents is to tell the federations, don't be afraid to write them. And you know what? And don't be afraid to consult with legal. I love that. That's great, great advice. What about for the athletes who are in positions, because I I feel like this is going to happen a lot because it's happened with other issues. They are afraid to be taken off of a team or to lose their spot at a competition if they speak out. And I know this has happened on teams before, both with this issue and with other issues. Athletes get scared into silence. They're kind of 
threatened in the silence, whether it's direct or indirect, there is this like known that you will be punished basically if you speak up against this thing. What do you suggest those athletes do? That's exactly what's happening with my federation. They sent me a letter saying, if you speak up, first of all, they told me that I have to use pronouns. (laughs) So this is how ridiculous it is in Canada. They have these (laughs) pronouns and uh, compelled speech. And then that if I don't, then I basically, they sent me a letter saying that I will be taken off Team Canada. So it's funny. I guess if people get harassed by federations and institutions like that and say, you know, we will ban you or take you off the team. Well, that's bullying and that's a harassment. I'll tell you right now, if anyone's listening to this, you know you're right because that is straight up bullying. And that's, I wouldn't say so much illegal, but it goes against your, your human rights and you cannot stand for that. So I would definitely report that if they ever do threaten you. And if any athlete, professional or not, gets taken off a team, I would definitely seek legal action on that for sure. And tell it to the world. Tell the world that, look at my federation just banned me or kicked me off because I'm sticking up for women's rights. How bad would they look if you actually spread that out there? Because that's what's happening to many, many athletes out there by their federations. Exactly. And when one athlete starts standing up, that gives courage to other athletes to stand up and then you start to stop the cycle. But if you don't stand up, then it's not just you affected. It's like more and more and more. And that also multiplies. So at this point, athletes are especially, you know, female athletes are going to have to choose. Am I standing up for this or am I going to let everyone else and myself be affected by it? So ladies listening, like I know it's not an easy spot to be in, but you've got to stand up for your rights, your integrity and your values and, and your morals, like what you know is right and wrong. Because if you don't do that now, like it's not even sport, like there's life beyond sports too. And if you can't stand up for yourself and your sport, it's going to be very hard in your life to not get completely trampled on as well. Like you are worth speaking for, you are worth like fighting for. And even if it's your voice that has to do it, we had issues on, on a totally separate end of the spectrum. We we went from like objective to subjective procedures and selecting teams. And there was a lot of inside stuff going on in our sport. And we stood up and fought like, and I risked my spot on teams to stand up and expose what was going on. And we videotaped meetings and we were kind of laying it all out there because people just didn't know. And it's scary to stand up and to be the one person, you know, doing that and having that voice, but you are paving the way, not only for yourself, but for everyone else standing behind you. And the more you do speak up, you give that courage to other athletes around you and and you start a movement, you start something. And if you don't stand up, like if the athletes don't stand up, you can't count on somebody else standing up for you. I mean, we've got a few athletes like you, April, like Riley, some other people, Taylor, that are are standing up. But the more that do that, the stronger this is going to be. Like it's got to start somewhere. When I found out that the male was competing, I couldn't sleep at night. It was bothering my conscience. Like I couldn't sleep. I felt sick. And I thought, well, okay, do I keep going on like this? Kind of like I'm tucking my tail between my legs and just not feeling right about it. Or do I take that risk and speak out? And I tell you the best thing I ever did was to speak out because remember we have truth on our side. You can go to bed at night, Laura. I can go to bed at night and feel good about myself because I'm fighting for fairness and I'm fighting for women. Okay. The federations, I bet they don't feel too great about themselves bullying athletes. And how could you feel good about yourself doing that? So it's a trickling effect. The more people you just said it that speak out, it's getting larger and larger. And all of us women have spoken about this. 
we know this is going to come around full circle and common sense will prevail. We will win this. I know there's going to be a time, I may not be alive, where all sports are going to be kept biological females. We are going to win. It might take some time, but people just can't be afraid to speak out because honestly, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? Oh, you know what? Like I've lost friends, but guess what? They weren't really my friends. They're not really people that I want to hang out with anyways. If they actually think it's cool for a man to go in and beat women in sports, then guess what? You're not part of my circle. Sorry. Don't be afraid because you really kind of make your life. It's like cleaning your closet. You're like, oh, I don't need this person anymore because this actually helped me cleanse my life by doing this. So, I mean, if you stick up for fairness and truth, I mean, this is a piece. You can have a great sleep at night. Yes, you have so a you good pure heart. Mm-hmm. Yep. For sure. Well, what's next on the agenda for you? Do you have competitions coming up? So right now I'm literally just training for North Americans. They will be August 10th in Grand Cayman Islands. And I'm so excited to go because I was like, awesome location. I was going to say a little vacation afterward, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm taking my boyfriend with me. So we're going to go and I lift on the 10th and then we're going to have like a little vacation after. So this meet is very important because I'm going for some records, the North American record, possibly a national and some provincial records. But these numbers that I get at this meet will qualify me for worlds for next year. So very cool. Well, good luck. I want to ask you before we go, like, what is your mindset and how do you give yourself peace and calm any anxiety when you walk into a huge competition like that, where you have massive goals, like qualifying for worlds and breaking records when someone like Anne or another transgender athlete shows up trying to rob women of their records or titles or spots on the team that you are trying so desperately to earn? How do you keep yourself calm? What do you do in the face of that? Well, it's funny you mentioned this because I've been having the best training sessions ever since this whole thing has happened because I actually use my anger Mm. and my frustration to fuel my workouts. So right now I'm lifting numbers. My peak, it's called a peak, is the highest it's been. And I thank Anne for that because without Anne fueling me, giving me that frustration, I probably wouldn't be able to hit these numbers. So that's one good thing because I mean, when I go into competition, I get a little nervous, right? But like now when I go to squat, which I sometimes get timid squatting, I'm just like, F you, I'm just like doing it. Like, (laughs) you know, it actually, it honestly, it's really helped me. I don't have stage fright either. So I don't mind competing in front of people, but I usually stay calm. I have my headphones on. I listen to my music. There's women on the Federation that don't agree with me and they will be at North Americans, but I'll just ignore them. And they're my teammates. But to me, they're not my teammates because they're literally clapping for a man to come in and take your own record. So that's not distracting to you at all when you're in the heat of competition like that. It's honestly, I just said, I said to my boyfriend, I'll look right through them, right past them. I, I won't even acknowledge them. I'm not going to engage. I think it's shameful that a woman would actually cheer on a man in sports. So I feel like saying like, thank you for erasing women's sports and contributing to it, but I'll just keep my mouth shut and just not acknowledge them. I'm there for myself. I'm not there for anyone else. All right. Fuel for the fire. I like it. Exactly. Well, April, (laughs) where can we follow you online? Is your website the best place? I stand with april.com. 
Yeah, so the website's great because you can kind of see what my story is all about. You can donate to any kind of legal fees that the athletes basically, whether it's me or Riley or anyone else that have encountered. And then also you can sign the petition on that website. But I'm mostly on Instagram and Instagram's my name, April.Hutchinson. You'll be able to find me. I have the blue check mark. So there's no imposters. Nice. <laughs> and then Twitter, my handle is L-E-A. So Lee underscore Christina four, number four. All right. Well, we will make sure to link to that in the show notes. Yeah. So we can, we can follow yeah. you and, and cheer you on through this year and the next. Awesome. Yeah, well, thank- make sure, make sure you're like ladies or girls out there, anyone that hears us, please. Like, it's so important. Please uh, speak up because we need your voice. We need more voices. I mean, we're doing well, but the more people you get on board with this, the better. For sure. April, thank you so much for coming on and for sharing your incredible journey with us so far. And we will be cheering you on. For sure. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests. And it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.